Father, as we come this morning, we give you uh, all of our praises and thanksgiving. We bless you for the many blessings that you have given us. We thank you for the life uh, and breath that you've given us. We thank you for the gift of salvation, for the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring, for the life that he has given us and continues to offer us. We thank you for the Spirit and his, his work in our lives and his work in the world. At the same time, this morning we come with our confessions. We come acknowledging the many ways that we have not loved you uh, the way that we ought to. And at the same time, as we confess, we hear the word of the gospel, the good news that we are forgiven and accepted in Christ, and that through the Spirit's power, um, we are given uh, a new life uh, and a, a transformed existence where we can experience the the love and joy and peace um, that you have come to bring us. Help us to to listen to your words this morning. Help us to have ears that are receptive to the Spirit's whispering in our own lives, uh, and help us um, to be always obedient, ever faithful uh, as we follow you. It's in your Son's name that we pray all of these things. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to see everyone. I want to ask you uh, this morning as we get started into a new year, whether you've ever been hungry for something that you knew wasn't good for you. Some of us in the new year, okay, we may have made some resolutions that had to do with our diet and nutrition, uh, our health, um, and we may have already discovered a disconnect between what we know and what we want, uh, between our knowledge and our, our deepest desires. Uh, and the, the task for someone who has a hunger for something they know is not good for them, that they know they shouldn't have, is to reshape their hungers. And, and I, I think that this is the task of discipleship for the church. I think this is what you and I have in front of us as a, a task, is to retrain our hungers. We have all these different desires and longings as human beings, and often, as we all know, we want what we know is not good for us. We desire and long for something that we know is not going to satisfy us, that we know is going to, to leave us empty and, and wanting more. And yet there's this disconnect. And this morning we're, we're starting a sermon series that I'm very excited about. We'll, we'll spend the next maybe six to eight weeks um, talking about um, what I think is the solution to this disconnect. What I think is the, the way out of this gap between what we know and what we do, what we know and what we want. And that is, in one word, liturgy. Um, when I say the word liturgy, if you have any familiarity with it at all, it, it might be a, a negative connotation, or you might think of kind of a Gothic, medieval, Catholic church, uh, or, or if you come out of that background, you might think of kind of a higher liturgical worship setting um, where there's lots of bells and smells, and, and you're standing up, and you're sitting down, and you're reciting prayers, and you are saying creeds. Uh, and things of that nature. When, when I use the word liturgy in this, this series, I'm using it broadly to describe a, a set or series of identity-forming, character-shaping practices, or routines, or rhythms, habits. And it is true that churches have liturgies, a script that we follow, but we, we do that on purpose because we think and believe that those routines and rhythms and habits will shape us into the people God has called us to be. And the choice for you and I is not whether we want to participate in liturgy. 
It's what liturgy are we participating in? I grew up in, in, in the Baptist world, in the non-denominational world, and there was a push away from those kind of higher liturgical churches. So no bells, no smells, right? Nothing that would be kind of confusing and, and off-putting, maybe to a, a seeker, someone in church for the first time. What I realized, though, is, is that kind of evangelical, non-denominational type churches, they have their own liturgy, right? It's just different. They just exchanged one for another. Two songs, 40-minute sermon, handsome guy on stage, one more song, and, and you're off. And if you disturb that very set pattern, right, people take notice. This is, this is our liturgy. This is our routine. This is our, our rhythm. We all participate in liturgies. And, and what we'll explore over the next few weeks is the profound and subtle ways that they shape us. We all have, have cultural liturgies that we participate in that we may or may not be aware of, that shape what we desire, that shape the kind of character that we have. We all have personal liturgies, routines and rhythms that whether we know it or not, shape who we are in ways that perhaps are more profound than we give credit to. And of course, we have sacred liturgies. We have the body of Christ and the practices that God has given us to participate in, to commit to, the spiritual disciplines which shape and mold and form us. The task of discipleship, I think, is to reframe our desires, to reframe our appetites. With that in mind, if you will open up your scriptures with me to Psalm 42. We'll we'll begin in the book of the Psalms in chapter 42. I want to kind of riff off of this idea of hunger and thirst, of, of the hunger and thirst that constitutes our lives as humans, and then the hunger and thirst that, that constitutes our um, spiritual lives, uh, our, our desire for, for, for Christ and for um, his Father and for the life that is on offer to us in uh, Christianity. We'll pick it up in Psalm 42. Um, we'll just read the verse two, two verses together. As a deer pants for flowing streams... So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? In Psalm 42, the psalmist says, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty for God. I'm thirsty for his presence. I'm thirsty for the experience of his transformation in my life. Hunger is a a metaphor. Thirst is a a metaphor that is used throughout the scriptures to describe kind of our deepest existential longings as human beings, beings, to describe our our desires and our wants. The psalmist says, I I thirst like a a deer is panning for streams of water. So my soul is is just searching for something that will quench my desires, for something that will will satisfy me. Um, If you flip with me to the book of Isaiah, in chapter 55, we get this beautiful invitation to the gospel. In Isaiah 55, the prophet says in verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. For those who are hungry and thirsty, this is your call to have ears that hear. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. 
Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Why do you eat things that are not bread? Come and, and eat that which will satisfy you. Come receive the life of God. This theme continues throughout the scriptures. In Matthew 5, Jesus tells us it's those people who are hungry and thirsty that will inherit the blessings of his kingdom. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, Matthew 5, 6, you will be blessed, for you will be filled. You will receive the food that satisfies, the drink that quenches thirst. If you flip with me to one last place in John chapter 6, Jesus describes himself as the bread of life, inheriting, inhabiting this, this metaphor. In a very interesting scene in which Jesus is going back and forth with um, different people, Jesus says in, in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I have said this to you, that you've seen me and yet do not believe. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This is the picture of humanity that the scriptures give us. Creatures who are hungry and thirsty and a God who has provided something that will satisfy them. St. Augustine said this very famously, uh, an early church father. He said, you have made us for yourself speaking to God and our hearts are restless until it rests in you. You've made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until it rests in you. In that statement, Augustine identifies and makes some significant claims that we've kind of seen in these passages of Scripture. First, he, he says that, that we were designed for something. There's this design claim to what Augustine is saying. We were made for and by God the Creator. We were made to become something, to find ourselves in relationship to who God is. Humanity is, in this sense, dynamic. We are for something. Human beings, what, what constitutes humanity is, is that we're always moving. We're always pursuing. We're always on the hunt. We're always looking for something. We're not static creatures. And this is maybe one of the ways that we have put a glitch in our discipleship process, is we've imagined that you and I as human beings are simply rational, that we're just thinking things. This is actually a project of modernity. Uh, if you're familiar with the philosopher René Descartes, he, he came up with this famous um, saying, I think, therefore I am. And we've kind of imagined as a culture that what constitutes the basis of humanity is the fact that we're rational. We can think in a disembodied way. Descartes says, I can't even trust my senses sometimes. They deceive me. What's most true about me is the kind of brain on the stick, the kind of mind on the inside. And so if that is what's true, then the task of discipleship is to inform that brain, to give new knowledge to that mind. But here's where we run up against this, this problem, right? We know what is good, we just don't do it. In fact, sometimes we don't want it, even though we know it is good for us. Human beings are more than thinkers. 
This is a reductionist view of humanity. This is a very simplistic approach to think that we are just kind of mind containers and you just dump information inside of us. That's all you need is a good lecture, a good TED talk. And this will change your life. This will lead you to finding life in Jesus. But, but we've all experienced this to some level where we are overeducated and underobedient. I mean, we don't really need to know what to do as much as we need to want to do that. And if we want to do it, that's when we do it. We always follow our, our wants and desires. Humans are desirers. We're lovers. And this is why sometimes you, you see people get confused by the actions of other people. They go, this makes no sense. Why are they acting like this? Well, it's because humans aren't just rational actors. Sometimes we behave in ways that don't make sense, that aren't logical because of whatever need or desire, existential kind of longing is, is there. We're more than just kind of these static containers for ideas. We're directed towards something. Augustine, he locates the center of this orientation in an organ, in the heart, in Greek, cardia. This is for the, the ancient people where the seat of our emotions was, where, where our intentions and our wills, where our deepest longings came from. Now, when we use the word heart, sometimes we um, have it kind of co-opted or appropriated by Hallmark kind of sentimentality, and it just becomes kind of emotivism. But biblically, and, and when Augustine is, is talking about his heart finding rest in God, he's, he's talking about this kind of deep seat of desires and will. You, you can use a, a different word for it in the ancient world, which is your gut, your liver, your, your, your very essence. And we tap into this sometimes with the way we speak. I've got a gut feeling about this. Augustine doesn't say, you have made us to know you and our minds are ignorant until we have been informed. He says, you've made us for you. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. The plight of humanity, we might say, is, is less curiosity and more hunger. It's less that we need to know something that is true and more that we need to find something that will satisfy us. We have this craving for sustenance, for life. And Augustine says that's when we find rest, when our, our loves, when our wants are rightly ordered towards that which will satisfy them. And on the other side, if that is true, that means that when we are not rightly ordered with our loves and desires, our hearts are restless. They're unsatisfied. They're empty and wanting more. When we love substitutes for the God who satisfies, we remain hungry and thirsty. Now, liturgy comes into play here um, because to change your desires is going to require us to rethink a, a few basic concepts. Uh, it's going to require us to think more like hungerers and less like thinkers. It's going to require us to acknowledge the fact that we are embodied actors, that the things we do in life shape who we are. We're, we're not just these embodied rational minds that can think our way out of a problem. We have to in a sense, kind of act our way out of a problem through the grace of, of God. There's a, a saying in AA, I know none of you have ever been there, but the saying is, your best thinking got you here. <laughs> right, if you think you can think your way out of these addictions and these problems that you've gotten, just remember, you were the, the 
genius you got here. Maybe you need to submit to a different kind of thinking. Maybe you need to, to submit your life to, to something else. We're embodied creatures. Our physical actions, our habits, they determine our identity. And this is why Christians for aeons have emphasized liturgy. Bells and smells, you might say. Because they've said that's actually a critical part of what it means to be a human as we experience the physical world around us. We don't just sit in a pew and absorb information. You might say it like this, you are what you eat. In a very real way, actually, if you look at the science or pay attention to the nutritionists, the things that you put inside of your body actually will start to shape and form the kind of person that you are. I can remember, so I uh, struggle with depression, anxiety. I can remember going to the psychiatrist for the first time. I'm 16 years old, and I walk in with the blue Gatorade. And I'm sitting down, and he goes, do you drink that a lot? And I'm like, yeah, this is all I drink. This is, this is my drink. And he goes, stop. I'm like, why? And he goes, every kid I see sit on that couch who has panic attacks comes in with a blue Gatorade. He's like, I can't show you a study. I have no evidence other than hundreds and hundreds of teenage boys like you. And maybe there's something about some ingredient in this, this food. At another time, uh, I was depressed, and he goes, let me ask you a question. Are you a big ice cream fan? And I'm like, okay, that's like, that's really my love. This was my first love, ice cream. And he goes, again, I have no studies, but most people who sit there depressed have this weird relationship with ice cream. <laughs> who knows whether it's you eat the ice cream because you're depressed, or you're depressed because you eat the ice cream, or, or maybe it's a bit of both for some people. And it always imprinted this lesson in my mind, right? He, he said, look, we can give you medicine, and that will change some things in your body and change some things that you experience. But what you're putting inside of you is the most powerful actions of change. That's what, what constitutes who you are. Pay attention um, to what is going on the inside. Um, nutritionists, scientists will, will say that our guts actually um, form who we are much more than, than we've given them credit for. Uh, the microbes in our stomach, um, they actually affect the neural activity in our brain. Sometimes we think our brain is a separate organ, unaffected by the rest of our body. It turns out it's not. What you put inside of you, particularly in your gut, affects dramatically the way you think and experience, the way you act and long. We've discovered in the last generation that inside of our gut is a network of neurons that we've often overlooked. It's so extensive, this, this neural network, that some start um, calling the gut a second mind, a second brain. That, that biochemically, all of your thinking doesn't happen in your brain. There are these neurons that we, we've yet to explore really deeply that are firing off in our guts. Perhaps this folk wisdom of a gut feeling is more of reality than we might have imagined. So you are what you eat. And so, too, do our actions start to shape and form us into the kind of people that we are. You are what you eat. You are what you do. The actions that you take, the physical embodied decisions that you make in the world start to come in and shape who you are. So if you start to lie and you keep lying, more and more you become a liar. But if you start to forgive and you keep forgiving, more and more you become a forgiving person. 
This is the logic of, of virtues and vices. That if you do something over and over and over again, it starts to become second nature. It starts to shape you differently on the inside out. Think of a, a young kid who's learning how to drive. When you're first learning how to drive, you have to think about everything. And it creates a kind of a bumpy experience. Have you ever ridden with a new driver or trained a new driver? And the goal is, hopefully over time, you do this enough that you can eventually do this kind of unconsciously. You don't have to really think about this, which can be kind of scary. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You get out of a meeting, you're very upset, you're kind of ruminating on how your coworker has backstabbed you and your boss doesn't care, and, and you're thinking about this, and all of a sudden you're in your driveway. You're like, well, wait a minute, what happened? Your brain didn't need you to think about driving. Through a series of decisions, it's formed the capacity to kind of automate this process. But throw a shift stick in there, and things get jerky. You start thinking about everything over again. You are what you eat. Or, Or we might take that a step further and say, in reality, you are what you want to eat. And, and what we've learned and what scientists, again, will tell us is that our hungers are actually things that we learn. They're acquired, acquired taste. Now, hunger itself is, the, is just a human phenomenon. Um, we, we get hungry. We need to eat to, to provide sustenance for us. But the direction your hungers take, the content or object of your hunger, is something that is taught to you. And here's the the almost sinister truth to it, sometimes in a way that you did not decide. Sometimes, unbeknownst to you, your hungers are being shaped. And so we can, again, use an example that we're very familiar with. Uh, In our kind of Western American diet, we process foods and and we fill them full of high fructose corn syrup. And, And what this does biochemically is it is... Empty calories. It is actually engineered to be such way. It's, it's empty and addictive. It leaves you wanting more. And all of a sudden you start craving that sugar and that caffeine. And these are actually, at the end of the day, engineered taste. These are chemists that are making a profit by shaping what you desire. It's a, it's a learned habit. Um, to the degree that you're exposed to a certain food group or to your food environment when you grow up, this often shapes what you enjoy eating, what you're kind of more tempted towards, your guilty pleasures, those sort of things. Um, and it, it can be hard to kind of understand this, that, that sometimes it's not just us doing things, it's the things we do doing things to us. Sometimes our actions actually start to act on us. Um, a few years ago in 2010, I was over in Kenya, teaching at a, a, a seminary there, and they have the best thing that's ever existed on God's green earth, um, which is called sugarcane. And, and I don't know if you've experienced this or not. It's hard for me to describe. It's uh, kind of like, think of like a big, thick celery. Um, and it's very fibrous, and you, you kind of bite into it and kind of just chew the pulp, and you spit it out. You don't eat that, but just sugar water just comes flooding out of it. It's amazing. I mean, it's like the heroin of food. 
And here's what I noticed. So, so you're walking down the, the road, and you've got these Kenyans who farm the sugar cane, and they're just cutting off slices and, and selling them on the road. And you start to notice only white people are eating the sugar cane. Because for, for at least the Kenyans that I knew and was working with and talked to, they didn't like it. It's way too sweet. It was gross. They had no taste for it. But I was a big boy. And I had, had my appetite trained over many, many different years. There are Kenyan children uh, who I encountered who, who didn't like candy. They'd put it in their mouth and spit it out. This is just way too sweet. This is overwhelming um, for someone whose, whose taste buds aren't um, used to that. The things we're exposed to that we eat regularly, they actually form what's appetizing to us. Hungers themselves are kind of a habit that are formed by practices. They propel us into routines, rituals, that then solidify those habits until they're second nature. And this can become a vicious cycle. Vicious from vice. A bad decision we make that keeps us trapped, as opposed to a good decision we make that frees us, where we want more and more of what is bad for us. So too our desires, our hungers, as human beings, learned things. They're taught things, sometimes unconsciously. And you and I, as we'll explore in the next few weeks, as I'll argue for, have been culturally taught to hunger and long for things that are empty and addictive. And, and sometimes we're unaware of how we're being taught this. But we're trapped in these vicious cycles where we have these everyday patterns and routines. We have these family patterns and routines. We have these cultural patterns and routines that just like food start to shape who we are and start to shape what we desire until we're stuck in this vicious cycle. And we never open our eyes up and, and kind of understand the corn syrup that's in the recipe. And what I, I want to do over the series is kind of open our eyes up to maybe ways in which we are being shaped and formed that we haven't signed on to. Alternatively, this makes the task of discipleship learning how to reform those tastes, learning how to rehabituate our hungers and our desires to want what we're supposed to want, what is good for us. We might riff off of St. Augustine's saying and say, you've made us for yourself and our gut will rumble until we feed on you. You've made us for yourself and we'll always be hungry until we're, we're feeding on you. And this is, this is where liturgy comes in. This is where rhythms and routines and practices come in because it takes discipline to change your taste and desires. Once again, we can move back seamlessly into the world of hunger and gut. And, and anyone who has kind of gone on a nutritional journey to change their, their taste and desires or who has gone on a weight loss process knows um, that there is this large gap between what you can know and what you can want. So, so um, a few years ago, I was a little bit of a bigger boy, and I walked into the doctor's office, and the doctor was like, you have prediabetes? And I was like, well, I really like ice cream. She was like, we're well, going to have to decide one of the two. And, and I start reading, and I'm, I'm very convinced, right, that, that I'm just kind of destroying myself with what I put in my body, and I'm, I'm tired, and I have no energy, and I, I'm not enjoying life. And, and so I go, okay. I'm going to be a vegan. And then on the way to the grocery store, I found that disconnect. 
Or I was like, no, but I really want bacon. (laughs) I knew it, but I didn't want it. And that was a big problem. To the point where there was a a, a moment in time where I was reading a book on the effect that um, some um, wheat has on our gut. And I'm doing that while I'm eating a a sandwich uh, made of white meat uh, or white bread, excuse me. And kind of mindlessly eating this, right? And all of a sudden, I kind of step back and go, wait a minute. This is just, the irony is too much even for me. I, I believed it, but it changed the fact that I wanted um, something that, that might not have been best for me. Rehabituation requires that we adopt a, a new set of practices, a new set of routines and rituals. To unlearn habits like this require counterformative practices, different rhythms and routines that will slowly retrain our hunger and and our taste. Indeed, that's what happens to the the human body. If you've you've done this, you might notice that rehabituation, this kind of counter-commitment to to changing the shape of your desires, it usually takes a community. It's a covenantal thing. It's not something you easily do on your own. And so you do it with a spouse or with a family or you find a group to join. And it's also something that Perhaps ironically, to, to do this, to reform your wants, you have to commit yourself to doing what you don't want to do. And you have to keep doing that. And then one day you wake up and notice you want to do this a little bit more. And it's become second nature to you. You, you kind of submit yourself to this new discipline and, and, and you become apprenticed to these new regimes, these, these regimens of, of eating and exercise. And, and we might say that our sanctification, our process of becoming holier or more like Jesus is more like Weight Watchers than it is like listening to a book on tape. It's less that we just need some fascinating information and more that we need to download an app and start to journal down everything we're putting inside of us and commit to doing things that are going to reshape and reform us. This is, I think, the task of worship, is to commit ourselves intentionally to these kind of counter-liturgies, these rhythms and routines and practices, these disciplines that we participate in, that retrain our tastes and our desires so that we hunger for what is right, for what is not empty and addictive, but is filling and satisfying. We hunger and thirst for righteousness for the kingdom of God. The church, the the community, the body of Christ is the place where God invites us to renew our loves and to reorient our desires and to to retrain our appetites. The practices of the church, we might say, are like a spiritual gymnasium, a place where we work out. They invite us into new routines to train our heart muscles, to, to, to shape our fundamental desires that govern the way we act and move in the world. And to the extent that liturgies can disorder our desires, they can reorder them. When we're intentional and reflective, when we commit to to doing those things which God has provided to us that over time will shape us, when we commit to embodied communal practices loaded with the gospel, indexed, pointed towards God and his kingdom, then we'll find over time that our very hunger has been reshaped. And now what we feast on is satisfying. And now we we don't run into this glitch in the system where we know what's good for us, but we don't 
do it because we don't want it and we're wanters at our core. It's the power of habit, the power of, of liturgy, the power of spiritual disciplines where God meets us and we are counterformed. We are rehabituated. We become familiar with the good, rich food that the Lord has for our souls. This morning, as we begin the new year, I, I, I want to ask you, what are you hungry for? Are you hungry for righteousness? Are you hungry for Christ and more of him? Is there a disconnect in your knowledge and in your desires? And then as we move through this journey in the next few weeks, what are the ways that we can start to open up our eyes around us and discover practices that we are embedded in that are shaping us away from the gospel, that are training us to, to want stuff, to just consume, to dominate or have power, that are training us in ways that will always lead us to, to emptiness and to this longing for more. And instead to find the embedded communal practices that we can participate in on a daily basis, that we can participate in as families, that we can participate in on a Sunday morning that intentionally retrain and reshape who we are so that more and more and more we might find that, that we're actually hungry for righteousness and justice. We're hungry for Jesus. And the good news is, is when you feed here, you are satisfied. And God has provided a way for us to, to retrain these hungers and thirst, these desires and these wants. As we'll explore, one of the ways the church does this is through the act of communion, through a repetitive, every gathering activity, the climax of our worship, where we come and we actually eat and drink, where we come and we actually feed on who Jesus is, where we come and, like in John 6, where he says, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. We come and we participate in Jesus' sacrifice in our lives. And in ways we might not even realize, this starts to shape us and form us. This starts to train our appetites to where we are hungry for communion. We are hungry for this remembrance of what Jesus has done for us, where this story and narrative, this love poured out for us, dominates our, our personality, shapes and forms our identity, becomes the most real thing about us and about how we behave and act and how we want to behave and act in the world. And so this morning, we are invited to a feast. Come and, and eat. And it, it might taste strange, and that's okay. That's the point. Come, come and eat. Come and feast. Come and find how satisfying it is to get fulfillment in God and God alone and then keep doing this. Make it a discipline. Make it a routine and a rhythm that one day you, you won't even think about. It'll have shaped you from the inside out. So this morning we, we come and we eat. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the time that we have this morning. I thank you for um, the um, plans that you have for us over the next few weeks. I pray that as a community of believers, as we study the scriptures and as we investigate and examine our lives and the way that we experience reality and, and move through our, our world, 
that you would reveal yourself to us even more powerfully and more fully, that you'd expose in our lives ways that we intentionally or unintentionally, consciously or unconsciously, train ourselves to want that which is empty and unsatisfying. And that you would open our eyes up to the grace provided to us through your spirit to be able to participate in different rhythms and routines that might lead to life and sustenance and satisfaction. Help us to pray like the psalmist and say that my soul thirsts for God. Help us to enjoy the invitation to come and to drink, to come and eat the rich food. We love you and we give thanks for all that you have done and and continue to do in our lives. Help us to be faithful as we follow you and help us to um, become more like you as we interact with the world around us. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. We practice.